Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. Hello everyone, happy Monday. At just 27, my guest today is already something of an expert in overcoming challenges, whether they be mental or physical. They are perhaps best known for surviving the two biggest disasters in Mount Everest history while still only a teenager, including the 2015 Nepal earthquake. Since then, they have achieved numerous feats of endurance, including being the fastest person ever to climb all 100 UK county tops and running the National Three Peaks Challenge, completing 452 miles in just nine days and 12 hours. However, it is the personal mountains that they have faced since childhood that for me distinguish them most, and the manner in which they have channeled those experiences into their mental health advocacy, charity work, public speaking, and writing. It's really no wonder, in my opinion, that they were awarded the Pride of Britain Granada Reports Fundraiser of the Year in 2017. Before delving further into their story, I will pass you over to them as they introduce themselves in the manner of their choosing. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Francesca. That's very kind. Um, yeah, well, I guess to try and follow that, no, I'm on the 24th. Uh, I guess I would describe myself as an adventurer, um, motivational speaker, author, and the founder of a mental health organisation called Mine Over Mountains. And I'm based in Kendall. I'm from Chester, uh, but I moved up to the lakes about four years ago um, for obvious reasons to have outdoor, you know, as I had to build an outdoor kind of lifestyle, really. Um, and then, as you said, my purpose my calling in life that i've kind of discovered is is around overcoming life challenges and, and helping to empower people to overcome theirs to achieve their full potential um through doing silly challenges and running a long way uh, to speaking about it in you know in corporates and organizations to schools and to writing about it as well and i think just trying to share the journey really trying to help other people find a way and and to face whatever challenges they're facing um you know i think uh, that's that's kind of been the, the path I've found so far at a, rel- at a relatively young age and um, essentially trying to leave something bigger behind. Thank you so much for that introduction, Alex. And I think as we were discussing very briefly before we went live um, on air, um, you're very much about kind of the, the messaging that goes with movement, um, not just the movement itself and, and the challenge. And that's something I really kind of want to want to draw out in, in this conversation, because I think 
you have a really powerful voice um, uh, and use it to to support and um, promote issues that really do need do need that voice in society. So thank you so much because um, I'm really looking forward to, to chatting more um, about these things and hearing about your journey. So just kind of going back to the beginning, what was growing up like for you? Good question. Where does it all begin? And again. <laughs> I think it's important to point out that, you know, I I didn't have the sort of typical background that you would expect for somebody to, to then to then kind of build a life around adventure in the outdoors and extreme challenges. You know, it wasn't really instilled in me from a young age. Um I mean I, I I you know, I had a great start in life. I was brought up in Chester, my parents gave me everything I needed, I was really fortunate in that God. Um um, I guess I had what many of us would probably understand as quite a normal, you know, a normal start. Um, when I was about nine years old, um, I had a malformation of epilepsy, which was quite a unsettling thing to go through at such a young age. You know, although that was soon brought under control, um, that was the catalyst for lots of other challenges that really just ripped out that, that kind of foundation from, you know, you know, from under my feet. Um, so... The epilepsy led to anxiety, to panic attacks, where, you know, for a long time, you know, the whole world seemed like a threat to me. And at that pivotal point in my life, I was learning how to manage anxiety and stop panic attacks, whereas I should have just been out carefree, having fun with my friends. Um, I was badly bullied all the way through school, probably because I was different. You know, I was I was a target, and that left me feeling worthless. You know, that just crippled me and... and I guess stole my self-confidence even more and I I hated sport which I know is kind of a cliche for the now ultra runner you know trying to do silly challenges um, but I was never born you know born active or sporty uh, my outdoor kind of resume probably went, about, well, went as far as walking my dogs and animals with my parents and maybe walking in the forest I love being in nature I love being outside but not to the same level that I do now for sure um, um, my dad was a marathon runner, so I guess that's where the running book came from. He was my inspiration, but you know, it wasn't like I was sent off to a club where I was, you know, kind of where I, where I was kind of, you know, I wasn't like a, a school cross country champion at all. Um, I just naturally found running is is my sport, it's my thing, it's probably the only sport that I'm possibly built for. Um, <laughs> worst of all, or perhaps best of all, uh, I've had a stammer all my life, which. Obviously, going through school makes things even more challenging than they already are. Um, the stammer comes and goes when it likes. You know, I know it's ironic that I now make a living as a motivational speaker, that I can speak in front of, you know, 500 people, be on my element, you know, be able to almost step away from that and, you know, tell the story. Then being on the phone or one-to-one conversation would be a nightmare for me and still something I actively avoid. Um but, you know, the best part about about the stammer is I've always really struggled with words beginning with C and K, which isn't ideal when you're from Kelsall and now live in Kendall. Um, <laughs> but I guess, you know, that made school a very frustrating experience, you know, growing up and even today is something I still have to deal with. I wouldn't say it's something I've overcome. It's just something that I now accept and, and don't let it define me. Um, but I guess if you put all these things together, you know, growing up, I I never had that drive to achieve. You know, I never had that way to really express myself and never felt good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that 
ultimately is what fuels uh, is, is now what fuels me in the outdoors you know i think it's dealing with all that stuff um i found the outdoors when i was about 14 so about 13 years ago in the lake district and that was when i finally really found myself you know i i, I finally found that place i belonged where i could prove myself i could prove all those bullies wrong i found that sort of safe accepting place and I found somewhere where it was literally just me versus the environment. You know, nobody could take that away from me. And I found a way to really discover my full potential. And I guess that's what I've been doing ever since, I suppose. That's uh, that's such an incredible story, Alex. And thank you so much for for sharing that as well. Um, I mean, for anyone, that is just a lot <laughs> to have in your bucket as as such a young person as well. Um, and it sounds like it, it sounds like emotionally that must have been really challenging. I mean, what did it feel like to be in your body having those things happen to you when you were younger? I mean, you know, with the experience and sort of life awareness I have now and the benefit of hindsight and age you know i think i realized actually i was still very lucky there's a lot of people that had much more traumatic childhoods and had to deal with much much bigger things obviously we only know what we know and i didn't know anything different i've never known what it's like to be able to speak clearly without having to worry about a block embarrassing myself ignoring people when i want to be able to say hello or thank them or introduce myself or ask a question so i guess i've never known any different and when that's your baseline, you know, it, it just kind of is what happens and you have to just to deal with it. Um, and I think you, you just have to cope. You don't really have much choice, you know. And I'm also grateful for all that stuff that happened to me because I think ultimately it steered me to where I am now, you know. But I guess at the time it was very unsettling. You know, epilepsy is... Can, you know, can be a full spectrum from a very serious life-threatening illness to something that, you know, is, in, in my case, was quite mild. But at a young age, when you don't know much different, um, yeah, I mean, it left me a nervous wreck. I was afraid of being out of the house when my parents were there in fear of having more seizures. And obviously, if that was still a problem now, then I wouldn't be able to do the things I do. Um so yeah, I think it just, I think if anything, it was more that long-term effects, that long-term kind of trauma and, and, and anxiety that has always stayed with me. And that, that bullying, that lack of confidence is definitely something that is, I, I still see and, and deal with, you know, I think is what fuels a lot of what I do. And, and you know, I think inevitably um, we're all, a lot of people doing endurance challenges and ultra running it's quite a common thing. The ones I know have had some major life trauma and this has been their way of dealing with it. You know, it's a way of actually a control challenge, if that makes sense. Almost we we can choose to make ourselves suffer, whereas life throws lots of things at us that, that we have no control over, um, if that makes any sense. 
No, that makes that's a really brilliant way of framing it. Like you, you pick your battle and your enemy <laughs> in a, in a sense, um, rather than it being an ambush. <laughs> and um, I think that I can certainly relate to that. And and it, it is a trend in so many people that I that I talk to on this podcast, and that are the friends and people that I meet through endurance sports. And I think that's what makes it also a really special community of, of people connecting on things that they have over overcome but are channeling in in really positive ways which you are which you are clearly doing and I just also want to say, highlight at this point that you doing this in order to get your message out further and tell your story is an incredibly brave thing because I I assume from what you said that is kind of a challenge having a, a one-to-one interaction with you know with a with an unseen audience as well and so I want to again thank you for for doing this and, and thank you on behalf of the audience hearing it as well because um I think that needs to be needs to be acknowledged too. Um, yeah, thank you. What was your first what was your first um interaction with the outdoors where you realized that it was going to be this kind of safe neutral space? Do you remember that and how that felt? Yeah and I think just to sorry just to um expand on your last point around that I think I think through time and through experience, I've, I've actually been given this platform and I've been given life experiences that are quite unique and insights that maybe some people don't get until they're 40 or 50 or older. And it feels like an obligation. You know, I have an obligation to share that and help people with what I know and to pass that forward. Um, so it's just the right thing to do, um, you know, and even if that's just posting on Instagram or, or writing a blog or writing a book, you know, we can all have an impact in in lots of di- different ways. Um, but back, back to the question, I think if there's one significant moment, uh, because I think prior to that, it was something that I just did as a family. You know, we went away to North Wales with the dogs and the caravan, and that's my earliest memories of the outdoors. But nothing extreme, nothing challenging. I, I still hate sport at this point. <laughs> um, I think there was always an interest in nature, but never any need to start running a very silly long way or, you know, breaking myself. Um, I think there was a couple of moments. I think first and foremost, I was on holiday in France with my dad and my stepmom when I was, must have been about 13 at this point. And as I said before, my dad was a marathon runner. He ran London a few times, um, really fit, really active. And naturally, you know, young lads often want to be like their dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we were on holiday, my stepmom had put a bet on me that I wouldn't be able to go for a run with my dad and keep up. <laughs> The bet was at two euros, which is a lot of money when you're 13. <laughs> and so I, I kind of wanted that. I took on that challenge. I, I have always wanted to prove people wrong because I, I guess I've, you know, I, I spent so, so much time in school just being victimized and being picked on and just feeling worthless. Um, so I took up the challenge, you know, I, I, I puffed and wheezed and whinged and moaned for, it was probably wasn't very far, but it felt like a very far time at the time. Um, but that gave me that kind of mindset shift. You know, when I managed to complete that run and follow my dad, um, I don't think he enjoyed it because I was whinging the entire way. <laughs> it, something just, just clicked, you know, and I think it, it, it makes us realise what we're capable of. And then there's always that curiosity of, oh, what else could, could I do? 
um, you know, when I uh, invested my earnings in a pan of chocolate or something, um, you know, there was a real sense of achievements and satisfaction there. I didn't really do much with that until about, I think it was about a year later, I was um, invited on holiday in the Lake District with my friend Tom and his family who were Keen Hill Walkers. It's something that I'd never really done before. I mean, we'd been to Ben Nevis with, again with my dad. We hadn't made the top. And that was quite a pivotal moment. But I think everything really changed in the lakes because when we were out walking one day on Sutafel near Blancafra, there was this random question that just popped into my head, which was, where's Mount Everest? Mm. You know, and I think suddenly being in the hills, being in this new environment, something I'd never even seen and didn't even know existed, you know, maybe realised that there's a world out there. and that question just kind of came out of nowhere. I asked my friend stepdad and he told me, oh, it's on the border between Nepal and Tibet. And so being a millennial, I came home, I went on Google and started kind of searching about Everest, just out of kind of a sense of curiosity and fascination. And I was only about 14 at the time. And although I didn't particularly enjoy those hill walks, you know, I was probably asking, are we there yet? I think it just planted this, this seed and... I always had this really warm, fuzzy feeling about being in the lakes after that. And when I'd come home and started researching, I, I realised that there were actually people, mere mortals like me, that had climbed Everest. And it suddenly seemed to be the thing that I was missing. You know, it was the ultimate goal, the ultimate challenge, a way to prove my worth to myself and to prove all the bullies wrong. And I just became absolutely obsessed with this mountain halfway across the world. And, you know, 14, when you think the world's, you know, is your oyster, I decided that one day I was going to climb Everest. And again, it was just one of those plans that probably, you know, we all have kind of stupid ideas at 14. I think we're going to do this and do that. Um, but then I, I put myself onto a rock climbing day with a climbing instructor in Keswick uh, called Tim Mosdale, who climbed Everest, because I wanted to meet one of these mere mortals and, and to find out how they'd taken on this superhuman feat. You know, and, and that was really my first step into mountaineering. Um, but after that, hill walk in the lakes, I started hill walking myself in, in the lakes in Snowdonia with a, a friend of a friend in my village uh, called Barbara, who had a walking group. Mm -hmm. And I guess the mountains just grew from there, really. But whilst that goal seemed so far away, at the same time, I'd seen a 10K run uh, advertised in my local village, the Sandstone Trail. Now, having had that, experience running in France, I now realise I could run probably better than I thought I could. And suddenly fitness and the outdoors just became my life very, very quickly. Um, so I guess that would go on to one thing and the next thing and the next thing. But I guess it was that combination of experiences over about a year that kind of helped me to really discover myself. I mean, that's astonishing that there was that kind of first introduction to hill walking and walking with Barbara and sort of like the little the little steps that one might expect into the outdoors. But that there's yeah. this kind of overarching frame narrative, sort of like a hero's journey kind of trajectory of this is going to end up at Everest at some point. Um, and the fact that you kind of cradled that within you <laughs> and, and nurtured it and then this actually happened is, is really quite astonishing because anyone can have a sort of a boyhood kind of aspiration and pipe dream. But the fact is that you had it and it kind of was simmering away and then you acted upon it and I'm curious as to kind of like when 
after that kind of initial spark of interest, what then, what got you there? What got you to base camp? Well, I think it's, it's surprising to think that this was 2010. And at that point, I never imagined that actually four years later, I'd be at Everest on that first expedition at 18. Mm. That was never really planned at that point. It was just, it, you know, it was a dream. And a dream becomes a goal when you have a deadline, you know, because there's lots of things that will never happen until we put a time on them. I think it is acting upon it, but I think what was the the fuel for acting upon it was all this past stuff. That was almost the life that I wanted to leave behind. And this goal was almost a way out of that. It was all that really mattered to me. I didn't know much else at that point. Um, what happened next, I guess, was this raising the bar of what's possible, you know, and an increasing confidence, you know, and that combination of things that happened in that time kind of helped me to really just keep on raising the bar and that, that excitement, that, that confidence, that almost new discovery of myself, you know, was actually wanted to find what else I could achieve, you know, and kind of simultaneously I'd, I'd got into mountain biking, uh, scuba diving, rock climbing, paragliding, um, just, just wanted to keep on trying all these outdoor sports and uh, not really afraid of being different anymore. Um, and don't get me wrong, I still have the doubts, the anxieties, the worries, but they started to kind of fade away. Um, and then I think after that climbing trip, I started to kind of find out what, you know, find out the steps that I need to make this goal a reality because, you know, there's no point having a goal without a plan. That was speaking to other Everest climbers, doing my research, reading the books, watching the films, um, and just trying to find how could I follow in their footsteps. And I guess that's the critical point. You know, we all have dreams and goals, but until we actually take the first step, then that's all they stay as. Um, so once I had a kind of a rough plan, I could I could realise how to, you know, where to start and how to get there. And 2012 was Mont Blanc. That was my first a big mountain still quite achievable without any real experience on you know on high mountains or or mountaineering in general uh, i raised the money for that through fundraising events car washes cake sales working as a as a, you know i was working as a pot washer in a kitchen so nothing glamorous um so there was a lot of fundraising just to get to mont blanc after mont blanc there was um Mera peak and Bruncey, the a year later and this is when things started to get really serious because that was a you know seven thousand meter peak yeah. again that was relying on corporate sponsorship uh fundraising events my school supported me i think it's really, really important to quickly put it out there because you know, you know big mountains like everest and expeditions are aren't cheap you know entering a marathon is expensive enough nowadays but to get a place on an everest expedition is probably about 35 to forty thousand pounds um now my parents weren't going to slip me a check you know my dad was from yorkshire so he would say it's a lot of money for a holiday but <laughs> ultimately i was going to have to find a way i'll make one and my job washing pots in my local pub wasn't going to pay for it that was just paying my keep so I, I, again through speaking through researching and 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 i guess learning from other climbers you know i realized that corporate sponsorship was the only option i really had um that is almost as difficult, if not more difficult, than actually putting the time in on the mountains and, and, and testing yourself at high altitude. You know, and that is probably the, the biggest barrier, really, for a lot of people. Um, 
And then it's interesting, I think this took a real a real turn because as, as well as this this goal that was kind of simmering away alongside A-levels and everything else, um, I really took running a lot more seriously. You know, and I, I'd gone from this one time um, this one time 10k runner to joining a club um racing sort of 5k up to half marathon uh when my friends are being kicked out of pubs being underage i was being kicked out of half marathons being underage <laughs> and um and i just you know my times came down i was loving it i was setting targets and, and racing and um and that was kind of my biggest passion at the time everest was kind of be one of those things that happened one day there was no there was no date set but then I got injured mm. and I couldn't run, I couldn't cycle, I couldn't climb, I couldn't do any of these outdoor things that now define me. So it was almost like being back at square one, you know, and everyone knows what it's like to be injured. It's the best sport in the world until you can't do it. Um, and this was something that I'd never really dealt with before. You know, I'd, I'd never been injured before and, and suddenly I'd lost that coping mechanism all this stress, all this anxiety, now I have nowhere to go. Mm. And that was when I sank into anxiety and depression. And then as it went on and on, uh, for months and months, you know, I was told I may never train properly again, let alone train to climb the world's highest peak. Um, that then, you know, that started with bulimia. And, you know, nine years later, I've never looked at food in the same way since. I guess that was kind of born from the desire to improve my performance you know while I couldn't run while I couldn't exercise um the eating disorder was kind of a way of becoming a better athlete you know by cutting out all these bad foods but as a perfectionist that obviously wasn't going to end well um and so no need to have the injury but I now had you know you know a mental illness to deal with as well and the uncertainty of this big goal in the future um so in this kind of bottomless pit basically um again there was another interesting kind of chain of events but i remember one night actually you know i'm skipping ahead of the story now my friend richard had um told me to read the book by bear grills mud sweat and tears and i would see him find out why because it was a story about bear grills when he broke his back just 18 months before he climbed everest at 23 and that was what gave me the hope the inspiration that i needed that, you know, I could find a way out of this. I had to focus on what I could do. So I did probably the, the least likely thing you'd do in such a situation, and I set the date. One December night, I was sat at home. I should have been working on my A-levels, and I wasn't. I remember looking at, looking at a picture of Everest on the wallpaper on my laptop, and I just had this kind of light bulb, goosebump moment, and I said, 2014 is going to be the year that I attempt Everest. And at this point, I was injured. I was 17. That gave me less than 18 months to raise 35 grand and also my A-levels at the same time. And yet that commitment was the difference. That committing to a goal, setting a deadline is what made things happen. I had no idea whether I was going to get there. I had no idea whether I was even going to get back to training. But that goal gave me that reason to, to get out of bed every morning when I was depressed or when I just lost all hope. And it kind of dug me out of this mess because I, because I had to. I had a goal to achieve. I had a lot of money to raise in a very short time. Um, but I guess it gave me a new purpose. You know, while I couldn't run, I had to part running. 
I didn't run then properly for about two years because it was too risky for the injury risk. I had to focus on average training instead. And it was the biggest gamble of my life, but I had nothing to lose. Um, and so cut the long story short, I, I spent the next year and a half raising the money. And uh, in 2014, at 18, I flew out to Nepal uh, on that first Everest expedition. That's an incredible story in its its own right, Alex, and and just such a testimony to to the fact as well of kind of of the power of, of literally mind over mountains, really, for want of a better phrase, which is the name of your charity. But this idea of again that kind of control that was maybe being channeled in in ways that were detrimental to your health with the bulimia. And things which um, we'll possibly come back to, but first of all, thank you, thank you for sharing about that as well. Um, but that kind of aspects of control then being threaded into a narrative that you could tell yourself and you could follow that new story, and that's what was going to get you to to Everest. That sort of self perpetuating belief, um, and I, I mean that's a really inspirational story of that strength being being found within you when you didn't even know if it was going to be possible um is is really extraordinary and the thing is like that you got to Everest um and this is a kind of two-part story isn't it really with with your attempts to to climb this mountain but I mean, it's kind of been a series of unfortunate but leading to fortunate events of things that you've grown through. I don't want to frame it as negative because actually from what you've said, you know, there's been a lot of positives that you've, that you've got from, from this misfortune. But then what you encountered on Everest was more trauma in a way, really, um, if that's a good word for it. And I... Um, I'm interested how how that panned out and how you dealt with that and how you came through it because some would frame it as like a really life defining or destroying kind of two <laughs> experiences that you had on top of everything else that you've been through. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. Um I think with every situation you know, with every setback, um, there's always two choices. You know, it can it can make us or break us. It can, you know, define us or defeat us. And I think that is kind of, if I could sum up what I do and talk about now, it's about choosing our response, you know. And back to your point before about control, it's interesting. I think running and sport is so much about control, you know. And I think that's why the pandemic was so challenging for us is because we lost control so much and you know running and exercise for me is a way of finding some control in a situation where there is no control um you know we're all kind of self-medicating in different ways and and the ultra running could be defined as one of those um i think yeah everest was um let's say it didn't quite go to plan you know you spend all this time training and mitigating lots of different risks and factors and then something you never even saw coming comes out of the blue so for those that don't know uh 2014 when we were there uh we just spent three weeks walking to base camp i was on uh tim mosdale's team you know having met him he mentored me i wanted to be on his team um so i was in the best possible hands 
and we a day before we got to base camp there was a big avalanche in the Kundu Icefall just above base camp and sadly 16 climbers Sherpas had been killed so naturally things kind of went a bit downhill from there and we had to pack up and go home without stepping a foot on the mountain so I guess that was a big lesson in about about control and about success you know because schools nowadays condition us to believe that the harder you work the luckier you'll get the better grades you'll get until things don't go to plan you know and the mountain doesn't give a damn how hard you've worked or how much you spent or how hard you trained um and then i guess i think i realized for so long my biggest fear was failure but actually that trip really overcame that fear of failure because i realized that actually failure ultimately is a choice it's about response and how do i turn this negative situation into a positive you know how do i you know how do i build from this now that doesn't mean we shouldn't be disappointed you know if you dnf in a race or something gets cancelled or you get injured it's perfectly normal and fine to be a bit miffed uh, i think the important thing is how quickly we can refocus and reframe and move forward um, so at 18, I wasn't really programmed to do, to do that. You know, at first I came back and there was a lot of, lots of, you know, anger and resentment and frustration, but that wasn't going to really do much. So it's like, okay, how do I use this time to come back and train, you know, and, and come back even stronger, which is what we did. So 2015, we were back on the mountain, second attempt, same team, same format. And we were just moving up to Camp 1. So we'd moved through the Kumu Icefall when the earthquake hit Nepal. So we were, well, we were just below 6,000 metres when all that kicked off and got hit by a big blast of powder. We were trapped on the mountain for two days at Camp 1. Uh, the route down to base camp had gone. Um, and not really realising that we'd been in the safest place of all, you know, and, and the base camp down below had just been wiped out by a much bigger avalanche which had, had sadly taken three of our team um so none of us could have trained for that i mean two years in the trot it's not something you'd ever expect um and obviously that was life-defining in lots of ways i mean at 19 to have that experience that insight of just how fragile life is you know had we not left base camp that morning we probably wouldn't be having this conversation now um and I think it makes you realise just the real risk is to take no risk. And it's not about being daredevil, it's not about being complacent. I think it's just about realising we're all on borrowed time and it's about how we use it. Um, and that was a you know, that was a lesson that some people don't don't get until they're a lot older, you know, until maybe it's too late to maybe do anything about it. So I feel really grateful that I've had that at such a young age. But I guess it really helps you to focus on what's important. Um, there's definitely a lot of trauma there, for sure. I mean, more so for the rest of the team who'd, who'd lost people. You know, they'd had to deal with the injured, the dead, the aftermath, the base camp. Um, you know, over 20, 20 people have been killed. Um, but then coming home from that, there's a sense of readjustment, you know, like the sense of guilt um, of, you know, from what's happened. And this real sense of how do I make this counts, you know, how do I, you know, I, I've been spared for some reason, how do I, you know, use that in a positive way? Um, and I guess when I came back, there was a lot of sense of loss. I didn't really know where I wanted to be anymore, you know, and, and nobody else could really understand because they'd not been there, um, other than people that had maybe been in the army who 
one good friend of mine, Rich, was that, that person. Um, but yeah, it was it was life defining and it helped me realise what's important. Um, but then also you raise the bar to a very very high standard, and I guess ever since then I've been probably trying to live up to that expectation, which is hard, you know, because it's probably unrealistic. And from a mental health basis, it 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 triggered lots more stuff. I can only imagine because as as you've already eloquently said about that that getting to Everest became your purpose and your kind of reason for living through mental health struggles. So I imagine that losing that thing that had become so kind of entwined with your identity may have then snowballed into quite an identity crisis um, in a way. Um, how did you pull yourself out of that? Um, again, I guess I didn't really have much choice. And the thoughts of not having Everest before but beforehand seemed just incomprehensible. You know, I, I couldn't I couldn't even imagine a life not having Everest. The sort of loose plan was uh, this this was my gap year. You know, I I, I was meant to be starting uh, starting a university the year afterwards, but I'd actually dropped all of my offers on the trek out of base camp the first time because I realised that wasn't for me. So I didn't really have anything else. It was all pinned on this successful summit, and I was going to write a book and work out the rest from there. Almost, I naively thought I was just going to rest on my laurels, but I think. I'm not actually anticipated at this point that Everest had given me something so much more than just the summit, that there was all this other stuff that was there that maybe I hadn't actually I'm not noticed or appreciated. Um, like the chance to start speaking, like the books, and like the fact that there were always more challenges that I could find. Um, and so in the end, not having Everest wasn't quite as, um, you know, wasn't quite as detrimental as I thought it would be um, because, as I said, I think just the process to get there had, had given me a, so much more, a much broader range of experience. Um, but initially, when I got home, the initial response was I threw myself into fundraising mm-hmm. uh, to write in my first book, Icefall, which was meant to be about the summit, but actually it ended up being a very different story. And in some ways, I'd hope it was maybe an even better story because there's lots of books about summers in Everest. There's not too many about two disasters in two years as a teenager. Um, so writing the book was quite therapeutic. You know, I've always enjoyed writing because I've not been able to speak as well as I'd like. And, and yeah, almost it felt like the obligation to tell the story for, for everybody else. Um, so I was, I moved, I moved to the lakes for two or three months working in a youth hostel whilst writing the book and doing more fundraising challenges, again, to raise money for people in Nepal. So I decided if I couldn't climb Everest, I was going to cycle it. So the endurance cyclists may have heard of something called, uh, you know, it's called, I speak, it's gone up, uh, Everesting, mm-hmm. when you cycle 29,000 feet of vertical ascent within 24 hours. So I, I was training for that. Um, and again, it just seemed a good way to raise some money. And again, essentially speaking and, and doing fundraising uh, award events and dinners and all sorts. I think it was like I owed it to the Sherpas on our team to, you know, to give something back. Um, I think I not realised that I was, like we often are, I was kind of trying to run away from everything 
I was trying to ignore all this stuff without processing it properly and rushing from one thing to the next and, 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 you know, trying to do lots of good. But then I completely burnt myself out. And by the end of that year, I found myself in a really, really bad place again. Um, for the first time, you know, I was on medication and I think what, there was one kind of turning point in that in that kind of episode of this kind of long climbing journey was I'd entered a half marathon and I obviously I'd done lots of half marathons at this point. You know, I knew I could run a half marathon. But again, just to give me a bit of a goal, a bit of a focus over the winter. because uh, winter's always had a really, really hard time, just mentally as well. Um and about seven or eight miles into the race, I just mentally lost it. I just blew up. I just stopped the watch and walked home. And, and that was kind of the sign that actually this was something that I couldn't keep running away from. You know, I, I couldn't do I couldn't manage this on my own anymore. I needed to actually ask for help. I think that was really hard because when you've built up this identity as a endurance athlete, adventurer, mountaineer, etc., people see you and maybe you see yourself as this mentally tough person. Um, and that was obviously not helpful in terms of asking for help. Um, but then, you know, after that kind of half marathon breakdown, you know, that was a real turning point in recovery because, uh, you know, I went, you know, I went to get more help. Uh, I saw, I saw my, I saw my uh, GP and she just broke down into tears, you know. Um, and then a few weeks later, I went back and did a half marathon and won my age group. So it's, you know, it's it's always about that, that response. But sometimes it takes a disaster to really get to the, to get to the solution. Thank you, Alex, for sharing that. Because I think one of my questions was going to be around the notion that it's it's kind of easy sometimes on reflection to frame adversity in this positive way as 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 a learning journey, and that doesn't diminish that because actually that is true. We learn a lot through through hard experiences and through challenging ourselves. But it sounds like in order to be authentic to actually your needs <laughs> and what you needed at that point was actually in being vulnerable and actually being vulnerable was perhaps the biggest mountain of them all because it, yeah your identity is forged around doing these tough challenges and being an adventurer and actually you know going and sitting with a with a stranger in a doctor's surgery and saying I'm at my lowest I need help I can't do that this I mean that is incredibly brave and incredibly humble and it's I guess letting go of that performance narrative in a way isn't it yeah and vulnerability I think is something I'm really keen to talk more about now I think just to just to kind of you know it's really important to say that it wasn't always this easy. Mm. You know, it's taken me years and years to get to this point of comfort and psychological safety to openly talk about it like we are now. Um, I remember the first talk I did after Everest 2015. So that was to one of my sponsors. Um, so so I've been supported by a business, a Westgrove group on both my expeditions and they supported me and the charity ever since. And I spoke to their their, you know, their kind of core team, operations team in the boardroom about the expedition afterwards. And it was still very raw. It was only a few weeks later. 
and I just couldn't do it. I was having to, I kept having to sit down and go out and refresh. Just my stamina was having a field day, mm-hmm. and it was just an ordeal, you know. And obviously, they were fully supportive about that, but it, it wasn't easy to be vulnerable. And at that point, I had so much. I think in hindsight, probably post-traumatic stress going on that I, yeah, that made that a real struggle. But interestingly, the, the world of ultra-endurance and, um, and extreme adventure is often a very invulnerable place to be. There is this stereotype of the kind of stoic, you know, burly adventure type. And I think my aim really is to show the human side to that, you know, because I think a lot of these people do these so challenges let's with all, all with all respect and you know and admiration i think we're, we're not normal we don't do these things because of that we often have some external need that we're trying to kind of suppress and overcome um i think you know most of us have had some major life event or trauma that is that has sent us this way that's why we feel the need to do such silly things um i think that's perfectly okay i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that but I'm, what i'm saying is um often people only see the, the high performance side to that and you've got to see a holistic full full person full you know kind of full body perspective because we still have the same weaknesses and doubts and fears everybody else has um and i think sharing that is also important because otherwise people see the ultra endurance athletes and think well i could never do that they're just superhuman there's something special about them and no doubt there are some athletes where they are they have some kind of superhuman ability but it's important to see that a lot of them are everyday people uh, with the same potential um, that have the same worries and flaws and fears that we all do because otherwise people don't feel like they could ever achieve that. And do you think it's that um, stereotype of what somebody who is tough looks or sounds like that stop men in particular speaking about mental health disorders? Possibly, possibly. I think... I think that well, no, I think definitely actually it does play a part in that, and there is that kind of there is that stigma. I think we're getting somewhere with it, but I think there's a long way still to go. You know, this myth about being weak or less reliable or less successful because you have a mental ill health challenge, you know, is quite literally costing thousands of lives across the UK here alone. Um, I think it's a much bigger problem than that, and I don't know all the answers. You know, I don't think. I think we've got a lot more collaboration to do that. Um, but I think for me personally, you know, I've been built up that people came to me for help. I wasn't the person that asked for it myself. And now as a founder of a mental health organization, you know, you know, as a charity, I often feel like I probably can't be as open as I would like to be because am I almost diminishing the effect and the impact of the charity? Whereas really the truth is that having that vulnerability is probably even more important to show that people that may look or appear as if, as if they're high achievers and you know as high performers um you know we have the same challenges and i think maybe we just deal with them or manage them in a different way um and the more kind of people in that limelight and um, i say limelight you know in a very kind of you know in a, you know, in a very loose way but if more of the people in the public domain are able to open up i think it will help to normalize the fact that there is nothing wrong with anybody there is no there's not it's not weakness of character it's not weakness of character uh, or anything wrong with them i think it's um a fundamental part of being human Mm. and i think we all have a have a role to play there 
but it's interesting because you know people look at me and I'm very tall, very lean. You know, ultra runner with absolutely no muscle mass at all on me. Um, you know, I'm 27. Yeah, I still get ID trying to buy. You know, trying to buy. You know, uh, yeah. If I start again, um, you, know, you know, the other day I got ID trying to buy paracetamol, <laughs> and yeah, I love the fact that I kind of defy the stereotype. I do not want to fit in, and I want people to see me and think that I just look like some, you know, really kind of, you know really you know un, kind of unassuming you, you know i look like just some unassuming kid like everybody else and i want people to have that perception because that's what makes them start to question their own abilities and think well what could i achieve if, if i can do all this and surely they can do a lot more um so yeah i think I, it's really nice to knock that stereotype on the head really but yeah i really like that that leaning into who you're not <laughs> in a sense um and and kind of growing that aspect rather than trying to lean towards a a, a persona that that does, shouldn't define you and actually stops you from talking in in an authentic manner as well and I say this as somebody who um who has struggled with eating disorders and anxiety um in the past and I think um I mean my perception is still that there is in particular around eating disorders a lot of stigmatization um and I'm not sure whether that's from the history is kind of narratives that get told around eating disorders that it's still kind of very hidden away and swept under the carpet and we kind of talk about it retrospectively and actually what I found really refreshing when you spoke about your bulimia you said it has changed your whole relationship with food that is a lived experience um and I think as I say like eating disorder is something that we're kind of okay with speaking about as a historical thing like I'm a survivor of it but people grow quite uncomfortable with the idea of an eating disorder being you know like suffering with depression or like being an alcoholic it's not something that ever leaves you necessarily um and I wonder what's your experience um and of the kind of reception of you opening up about your bulimia yeah I think we're all we're all self-medicating in different ways and and almost controlling food was very similar to say alcohol you know or smoking or whatever it is that people use to cope um and I think that stigma or perception of it was interesting because with depression and anxiety it was much easier to talk about i didn't feel like there was going to be any negative reaction to it now there was, there was some you know especially there's a generational issue where you know if i mentioned to my grandma for example um her reaction and you know it's well intended is oh what have you got to feel sad about you know they don't realize this is, this is a genuine you know a genuine illness which can be it can be you know it can be systemic for sure but ultimately, it's a very real thing. Um, and with eating disorder, that was something, for some reason, I felt very ashamed of. I didn't tell anybody for probably three years, maybe one or two close friends, but my family didn't know anything about it for about three years until they you know, they, they finally noticed. Because I think with bulimia in particular, it's very easy to hide. You know, you look like a normal weight. I look like a normal weight for the whole time. Um, it's a very secretive what feels like a very shameful practice and always once you start 
it or, or, or once you start, once you develop it, it's very, very difficult to stop. And I never at that point believed that recovery would be possible, you know. And I think I just it just became part of my day, daily routine. When I was injured, for example, it would flare up, but I used it to deal with stress. Um, and yeah, I mean, what so I'm, I kind of consider myself now as recovered for the last sort of two years. But before that, I I never had, and even now, I still don't have what I would call a normal relationship with food. Mm. You know, I still have trigger points I have to watch out for. Um, I do still see myself as recovered, but probably two or three years ago, um, you know, I had to avoid situations. Uh, food was a constant source of stress. And, yeah, what started as a very positive intention to try and improve my health and cut down all these bad foods was probably the least healthy thing I possibly ever could have done. Um, I think that's probably why I, and why we as a, you know, as a society are so, you know, uncomfortable about it, is that it's so misunderstood. And I initially assumed that this was something that I could have just dealt with on my own, like I had the epilepsy, the stammering, the bullying, but actually this was a real illness that needed medical support. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the difference between, say, an eating disorder and alcohol, you know, is we need food to survive. It's all around us. And I think as athletes in particular, we're probably more prone to high standards and comparing ourselves to other people. I think with, with me especially, I saw all these really fast runners that I wanted to be like and be at their level. And, you know, controlling the food was one way to look more like them mm-hmm. and perform more like them. And it took me six very miserable years to realize that actually um, if I want my body to let me do these crazy things that I love doing, I've got to fuel it. I can't have one without the other. And, and yeah, it, I think again, you know, ultimately um, it was that misunderstanding about them and shame is what made it so hard to talk about. And even when I did tell people, Especially when when I was talking talking to, to you know I, you know especially when especially especially when talking more with men and male friends, it was even more uncomfortable. You know you can sort of see people sometimes that get a bit squirmy, a bit uncomfortable when I'm talking about it. Whereas talking talking to a mum, for example, it seemed to be more of a female issue, and I think that is a big problem. Um, is that eating disorders are seen more as a as a, you know more in that um, you know. Is it, yeah, it's definitely less seen in males, but I think that is possibly because it's more, it's less reported in males for the same reason. And athletes as well, there is this culture, there is a cultural problem around, you know, um, it, you know, around exercising to earn calories. You know, essentially, we, you know, we exercise to burn our food. It's almost like a mathematical balancing equation. You know, if you run X miles or X minutes, you're going to eat X number, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, for example, this time of year is the worst. It's like, oh, well, this is how far you have to, you know, if you run this far on a machine, you can have, you know, x pies, for example, or this is how far you've got to run to burn off all this kind of, you know, you know, um, which I'm trying to think of uh, Christmas foods, but it's too early in the year to talk, <laughs> to talk about it. But it, it is that kind of... Turkey. Uh, <laughs> almost mathematical in a relationship with food and that is completely unhealthy mm. and a lot of people are enforcing and spreading that without really you know intend to or realizing it but for athletes it has a real negative impact 
I would absolutely agree with with everything that you say. And I think, um, I mean, people sometimes see it as counterintuitive that if you are, if you have an eating disorder, that you could function as an endurance athlete. And I, I don't know about you, but I think that endurance running was kind of the savior of my eating disorder because I realized this a kind of flipping that equation of being like okay I need to eat in order to fuel what I want to do and who I want to be and my identity is now linked to this kind of strong girl narrative rather than the sick (laughs) sick girl narrative that's been going on and taken away all of my teenage years and all the stuff that I could have been doing doing then but as you say likewise there is this kind of this real toxicity around kind of and especially as you say at this time of year that kind of run this far and then you'll earn this and it shouldn't be about earning anything we're all enough (laughs) and therefore we we need to eat enough in order to be enough and that's it's as simple as that but that's not the messaging that gets put across <laughs> because people want to sell gym memberships or or they think that you know kind of losing a few more pounds is going to like make them into a super marathon runner and actually it's not the case actually being strong is going to enable you to get to the start line of a marathon um more so than than starving yourself um and as you say it's it is is a real problem and I think that's why it is important that we we kind of have these conversations as well that model how to talk about it in a really neutral and non-judgmental way like it's an illness um like like anything else and and something that kills people because people don't yeah. talk about it <laughs> yeah absolutely I mean, as you said before I mean it is something that it hasn't gone away you know I've not been able to eat it's it's changed, it's changed, it's changed my relationship with, with food ever since. Mm. I'm in a much better place of it now. You know, I'm a much healthier position, but this year especially, because I've not been running for several months now, um, it has kind of resurfaced and I've had to just to try and force it back in the box. And I, I realised recently that it hasn't gone away for sure. I just like anything in life. I just have to live with that. Um, yeah, there's the, these conversations and changing that narrative, I think, are really important. And I know that you, um, just to flip back onto when you when you have been doing kind of physical endurance challenges now, um, you you did climb the UK um, and you were raising money for Young Minds at that point, um, hence linking it to talking, talking about mental health. Can you just explain what that challenge was and sort of what the inspiration was behind that? I think after Everest and, and then uh, Chowa Yu in Tibet in 2016, I kind of realised how to achieve mountaineering wasn't really for me, but also it wasn't really making the difference I wanted. You know, it was a bit of a, I think it was a bit of a reality check is that, you know, was I really making my biggest difference on a mountain halfway across the world? And I didn't have anything to prove anymore. Um, and then I heard about a British girl called uh, Elise Downing who was running around the UK coastline and it just sort of got me thinking in a different way about what could I do close to home, you know, in the UK to, you know, achieve something bigger. And I've always wanted to do things different. You know, I've always wanted to go a bit off the beaten track. Um, I know people will laugh and say, well, Everest isn't going off the beaten track, but climbing the UK was essentially a challenge to climb to the highest point of all 100 counties in the UK, so England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales, um, all by human power. 
So cycling, walking, running, kayaking, 5,000 miles in 72 days. It was, I think, the fastest time anybody had done them in a continuous round. Um, but again, the target was to raise uh, £20,000 for Young Minds, which is the leading mental health charity of young people. Um, I think because I realised just the lack of support that was available for me as a young person. So I think this challenge was the first time that I'd actually set out what I'd, so I'd actually achieved what I'd set out to do. But the best part about it was that other people could join in and be part of it and, and come in and, and cycle and walk and run with me, you know, and really getting to appreciate what we have here in the UK and gain that love and appreciation for that and the kindness, the generosity, the surprises around every corner. Um, and in many ways, it was kind of harder than Everest. I know I can't compare them because I haven't climbed Everest, but that day-to-day endurance, uncertainty, injuries, illness, everything, um, it was a logistical nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it. Did it, I mean, I know that you had at that point kind of flipped the script in terms of your relationship with Everest but did the kind of successful completion of that as sort of your first success in inverted commas did that help to put some of those maybe kind of residual demons from the non-completion of Everest to bed do you think yeah it definitely gave me closure and it made me realize that I you know I didn't need Everest anymore you know and um I really found peace with that and I guess it was a it was a whole new Everest you know it was um it was a realisation of the foundation that Everest had given me, you know, and it, it led to much bigger and better things, which I'm grateful for. So, yeah, it, it definitely helped. You know, the mental demons are always there for sure. There was always that drive to find something else or something else. But after climbing the UK for a few months, I was quite content just to sit and be, you know, and um, my speaking started to kind of take off by that point. Um I started working on my second book so I had lots of other stuff going on so it was yeah it was a sense of satisfaction with a few months if people asked me to do anything I was like no I'm not going anywhere I'm not cycling anywhere I just want to be at home and just not have to cycle anywhere (laughs) so it was yeah it was a really nice time I mean, it's interesting as well, because you you said at the beginning of this conversation with what the outdoors meant to you and it kind of being this safe, neutral space. And I mean, Climb the UK, it's not just the physical challenge, but I imagine it, it took you to incredible places all over the UK. And I'm interested in that kind of relationship, what you got from moving through the landscape in that manner and also connecting with people particularly in mind of that I'm going to come on to talking about your charity and and that being about connecting people in the landscape as well um so I'm wondering kind of what did that give you in terms of your connection to to the country as well I think my my list of places to go back to grew a lot bigger Um, (laughs) I think it gave me a, a real sense of a sense of resilience, you know, like I, I, I pushed myself to breaking point on that challenge more than ever before. Um, and that ability and that awareness of, I guess, of, yeah, of my own ability and strength was really helpful. I made some great friends on that trip and I think it was the catalyst for all the things like the charity with which we'll come on to. But I think it was that sense of just so much so much can change in a day this too shall pass you know like our moods and emotions they come and go and I think it was that 
real awe and appreciation just for what we have here. You know, so many moments just made me swear out loud in amazement, you know, and laugh just at the what I was experiencing, the colours, the views, the landscapes, you know, kayaking on the Isle of Wight, getting my one and only flat tyre of the entire challenge. Um, <laughs> having the moments when I'm hypothermic at a bus stop in Scotland in the middle of nowhere, you know, having a mental breakdown. And I use that in a, a non-PC way, because by that I mean crying my eyes out on the side of a mountain, on the side of a hill on my own, absolutely a breaking point, and have no choice but to carry on going. Um, so I think it just pushed the bar so much higher and in all the bad news it makes you realize actually there's a lot of good out there as well mm, so discovering kind of the, the positive humanity as well and how do you what's the comparison between kind of overcoming dark times that are inherently practical and of your own choosing <laughs> even if there's kind of unexpected mishappenings that happen along the way and then the kind of the the mental challenges that you faced in terms of you know mental health I think the main thing is choice you know we don't choose mental health on the, on the mountains and the marathons, you could just turn around and go home at any point. Mm. Um, unfortunately, mental health doesn't give us that same luxury. Um, but I think this, the similarities are that, are that kind of law of impermanence, that how you feel right now doesn't have any bearing on how you're going to feel the next day, the next week, even the next hour. Um, in the challenges, you need that team support. You know, in those dark, difficult moments on the mountains and the marathons, it's often having the right people around me has made all the difference. And that is just equally, if not more important, in our in our challenges close to home. You know, it's very easy when when you're feeling down or, you know, in depression to isolate yourself. And I tend to kind of really withdraw myself. And I know now that's a sign that actually I need to do the opposite. And luckily, um, I have a great network of people around me who, who they they notice, they know to when to come in and be present. You know, at when I need it most. Um, and I think as well, it is that ability just to take it a day at a time. You know, and sometimes it is about taking that first step. Um, I recall one day on climbing the UK where literally the hardest part was just opening the car door because I, I literally slept in my friend's car overnight because I was suffering with a chest infection, about to do better lawyers. I was shaking, I was shivering all over. And it was like somehow summoning the motivation to get out and, and climb this big Monroe in Scotland in howling wind and rain and the fog. Um, and sometimes in depression, you know, when I got back from Everest, it could take me all day just to get the motivation to get out and run 5K. You know, despite having this past experience and this threshold, that normally I should be able to go and do a marathon just for the hell of it. But at the moment, my baseline is reduced to actually now it's just getting outside to run 5K. Um, I think the only way I could cope with climbing the UK and the fact that I had so far to go and so many more miles to do day after day after day was that ability just to focus on the next step, you know, the next mile. Not worrying about the 100 mile in two days' time because if it's going to forecast, if it's going to rain all day, then I'm going to have to get outside and cycle anyway. Um, but now it's just about what's going well right now. And I think if that resilience we get from the outdoors, although it's different to mental health, you can still find yourself in a really hopeless, scary place. And, you know, I've, I've been there many, many times since. 
um, you kind of have this past experience that things do improve and that you you will get there. And I think that is uh, priceless. That's a really valuable reflection, I think, Alex. And and from what I sort of get from that, it's that idea of again, kind of control and what can I control in this moment? Well, it's sort of the same with mental health. You need to try and cling to those things that actually I own this experience rather than it owning me. (laughs) And when we're in those really difficult situations on a mountain or in a really long run or something, it's like, okay, I'm catastrophizing at the moment. It's all going into the future. And actually what I need to do is think, okay, what's going to make me feel better right now? Well, I need to eat something. <laughs> like I need yeah. to get my map out. I need to actually ground myself now, or I need to put another layer of clothing on and I need to stop making this <laughs> into everything is over. <laughs> everything is dreadful. Well, yeah. actually maybe a few things aren't so dreadful <laughs> at all. Absolutely. But it is often the same things. I mean, it's often the basics in say an ultra marathon, whether it's around sleep, diet, hydration, uh, planning, preparation, lots of these things do translate to good, you know, good mental wellbeing as well. Um, generally, if I know I'm having a bad day, it's like, well, I look at what's happened that day. It might be because I feel because I've lost a routine. Maybe I've not been outside all day. Maybe I'm not eating properly. By that, maybe I'm not eating enough of the good stuff. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's often that kind of troubleshooting. I think is something we learn to do. I think is really valuable. Let's um, let's talk about mind over mountains um and I, I just want to give you this opportunity um as a lead on from that and you again con- connecting people and the outdoors with um kind of what it's about and the evolution of it thank you yeah i know really pleased to and always grateful for the opportunity to talk about it um we became a charity in 2020 but before that uh, as a result of climate uk i was invited to lead an event with um, an organization called Adventure Uncovered, who they still, you know, they're still about today. They do lots of cool impact events and an adventure film festival every year as well. But James and the team there had kind of wanted to do this event promoting the benefits of hill walking for mental health. Um, so I kind of got involved as like an ambassador, but we kind of developed this concept together. And we all know that walking and being outside is good for our mental health. You know, we know it's good. We maybe need to work out a bit more of the science behind why, but I think we can all relate to that. Um, so I wanted to make it more than just a weekend of walking, but actually giving people some self-help skills and tools to take away. Um, and ultimately, we ended up providing a weekend retreat in the Lake District in 2018, about 20 people, combining uh, walking with coaching, mindfulness, uh, inspiration speakers and counsellors and just giving people this safe space to walk and talk to reconnect to get away from wi-fi and the stresses of daily life and essentially build resilience and reconnect with with like-minded people and we were so blown away by that weekend that we um wanted to essentially set up, set up as a charity to support people who needed it most so so myself and a mentor, Chris, we kind of took it and then set up a CIC and then converted that to a charity um, in 2020. And well, what a year that was. <laughs> so naturally, we couldn't do our weekend retreats anymore. So we had to adapt it to like a day walk um, to allow us to work with small group sizes and not being indoors, for example. And I guess it's kind of gone from there. You know, we are still a very small charity. You know, we only have one full-time paid staff and 
I kind of describe it as a, a full-time unpaid job, but it's kind of a legacy that I would want to leave. It's a bit earlier than planned, but the opportunity was there for sure, especially after the pandemic. The lack of support or available for the increase in demand is quite frightening. Um, so essentially, we deliver day walks, weekend retreats, and mental health first aid courses across England and Wales for anybody over 18. Uh, we work in areas such as the Peter Street, the lakes, but also in Essex and New Forest, where there's not a lot of mountains. Just about getting people out in nature, really. And again, what's I think what makes us different is that having that professional support. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just walking, but it's people there that can hold it and create that safe space for them. And we've done events now for the NHS and for the police as well, which has been really cool. Um, I guess it kind of got so busy and so big so quickly that we couldn't, couldn't really keep hold of it. So we've now had a lot of change and transition and we've um, just just appointed a CEO as well who you know, will be able to take it to that next level really. And I guess I realised that I'm not the CEO. You know, my strengths aren't in commercial stuff. It's fundraising, it's raising awareness, it's having conversations like this one. Um, and the best thing for the charity is to give it a sustainable foundation so that we can grow uh, as big as possible to reach everyone who needs it. I mean, I think as as a charity, uh, exceptionally lucky to have you as a founder because you you have that self-awareness and humility to not not get your ego involved in it and to like with Everest I guess to know when to to let go and to know what that experience means to you and what you can give to it and and sort of take from it as well um and so I kind of like prophesying here that there's sort of bright future with it but I think that that is really testimony to you as a character as well um and the efficacy of the of the work that you're doing with it as well, um, I and think, I think um, the main lesson from it. Sorry to interrupt there as yeah, well. Just yeah. um, I mean, the main the main the main difference and the, and the key point is that there's only so much we can achieve on our own. And I've always been I've always preferred kind of solo challenges, and I'm I'm, I'm very independent in everything. Um, but with with the charity now, we have a great team of people and. I'm not involved as much in day-to-day operations because it's too busy to do that. You know, I have to, my my main job is speaking, you know, in organisations and writing. And the way we see it now is, uh, with Chris and I as the founders, is, um, you know, we have a commander of the ship, but now we have a captain. And the team we have, they make a much bigger difference. They do a brilliant job, a much better job than I could possibly ever do on my own. I think if you can guide the people you give them the vision you tell them what to do and they, they believe in that I think that's been the key to its success really not not me at all it's just about having the right people around you and I think um I've had conversations in a previous podcast about um the idea of gratitude being sort of self-perpetuating and I do believe the same to be with giving and I wonder what what's the charity and the community that you've sort of built through it given you um, well, lots of things. I think it's just that for me personally, and yeah, he's that sense of contribution. You know, I see the posts, I see the feedback, I see the comments from the people that attend our events and what they gain from that. And I'm sure there's lots we can improve. I'm sure we're still growing quickly and 
try to do as much as we can with so little. But I think it is that sense of knowing that we've made a difference, that this event has has done something for them. I think if I can go to bed every night knowing that it's made a difference to somebody, then there is a sense of maybe peace in myself that sometimes it's not always about setting big challenges. Sometimes it's just these events are having a real positive impact on the world. Um, and like anything, I mean, working in a team of people in, you know, in our, more so in the operations team has taught me so much. You know, I've always been a bit of a one-man band and um, it's, yeah, working with, working with a team can be challenging, but I think it makes us learn so much about ourselves and better ways of doing things. And, you know, I learn from the team every day, really, and the, and, and the community do give me a lot of gratitude, I think, for sure, in that sense of, um, especially in the last couple of years, you know, we would not be where we are without the dedication of the people around us and people who believe in that. And, yeah, I'm grateful for that every day. And do you think, what is it about being in the outdoors that I, I mean I hear a lot here about that it is about breaking down the, a lot of the barriers that we've spoken about actually about talking about mental health what do you think it is specifically about being outside that means that people are able to open up and I, I, I say that with the caveat that what we've just discussed is there is also you know proper medical kind of intervention that's happening here and it's not just going for a walk in the woods kind of thing but but it does seem to be about about the dialogue that is created through moving moving outside as well. A golden question, and I'm sure there are much more qualified academic people that can give you a better answer than me. Um, I think there still needs to be more evidence and science in this space, um, which I'm sure will follow. Um, and I think it's important to say that we're not saying that this is a, a miracle cure that wouldn't it be great if we can just go for a run in the outdoors and everything will be fine I don't think that's realistic I don't even think that's even something we should aim for I think life is always going to be challenges and the outdoors and being active in the outdoors for me is a way of managing that it's a tool that we can use and in my opinion it's one of the most powerful tools because of it's where we're meant to be but it's where we're wired to be I think something we've lost a lot of in this modern busy world with technology and distractions and everything else um, and I think it's it's not only where we're meant to be but it's that way of um, getting perspective you know I think when you're out in the mountains or even just in your local park you know just be able to stop think and reflect uh, you see things in a more positive and more um you know, objective way. And if you're moving or if you're running or cycling or whatever your thing is, there's a sense of achievement. There's the endorphins, which make you feel better. There's stress management. You know, I've noticed that this year, you know, I've not been running because of, you know, because of long COVID. And I've noticed it's affected my performance, my motivation, mentally, every different kind of, in, you know, in every element, I've noticed that, that difference. Um, and... I think there's also a community, you know, in the outdoors, you often will find a community, whether that's through walking or, or running or entering races or anything like that. And, and community is absolutely vital for our well-being. Um, and there's a lot of science around just being in green spaces and feeling the sunlight and, and, you know, feeling the wind in your face and the rain, I think it gives you that temporary escape from, from life, you know. You often say that trail running is the ultimate form of mindfulness, which is probably why I'm always spraying my ankle. But, you know, <laughs> um, 
I think, yeah, there's so much I could say there, you know, and we're not saying it's a, a miracle cure, you know, for sure. There are many conditions and, and, you know, severe mental illness which just need more advanced therapy. But we think for a lot of people, it could be a really helpful tool. Oh, absolutely. I'd agree. And I think, yeah, as you say, it's not kind of, I think there is growing science around it. And I was reading a couple of weeks ago about kind of being outside in green spaces as they're, they're looking into options of sort of prescribing it in a way um, on the NHS, sort of getting out in, into nature. So I think that there are those kind of proven benefits as well as the lived experiences of of people like us that go and do it and I, I'm really sorry to hear as well that the long COVID that that you're going through because I imagine that that must be throwing up a lot of a lot of challenges in its own right at the moment and I realize that you're someone who keeps themselves busy but sending you so much so much love and good energy for getting through that as well because I it's not it's not nice at all um especially for someone who who gets so much from being outside and and moving as well um and I just wanted to to just before I finish with some quick fire questions um you identified that you know your kind of role is in is in fundraising and kind of being the voice of the charity and things. And I, I, I noticed that you've done the another incredible challenge of running the the National Three Peaks, but plus the distance in between them. <laughs> so a lot of people see tackling the, the Three Peaks as standalones, as, you know, lifetime <laughs> tick box enough in itself. But you ran between them as well in order to raise money specifically for mind over mountains this time um and I was just wondering if you could just quickly reflect on that as well and how that compared to climb the UK don't try it at home is what I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't do it <laughs> yeah physically and mentally it was the hardest thing I'd ever done and I don't know now how my body stayed together you know I it was pushing the boundary to a new level you know I really I'm always looking to push the bar, but when I did that, there was an instant regret of what, what on earth do I think I'm doing, you know, and I've never doubted myself before a, a challenge as much as that one. Um, I think because, bear in mind, before that, I'd never actually done an ultra. My furthest run was 36 miles, so I was aiming to run 50 miles every day for nine and a half days. Um, I think to raise money, I've, I've, I've had to think of more silly and more, you know, kind of ridiculous ways of doing it, you know, because there's lots of people doing great challenges for great causes and it is getting harder and harder to own that space. Um, but I'm always looking for that sweet spot between like excitement and possibility and, Oh my God, this is, sounds impossible. Cause that's where the fun stuff happens. Um, <laughs> but with the, the, the three peaks in the normal way was kind of my, my very first challenge and it seemed very fitting really to, to do this because I realised that running and since moving in the lakes was was becoming my my strength, my area that I was really sort of passionate about. And uh, it had the UK tip box. It was long enough and yet short enough to build interest, to raise money, to get some profile. And again, it was uh, it was a record attempt. I was trying to break the FKT, which I missed by an hour. Oh. Um, but it played to my strengths. And I think it was... It really taught me how resilient the human body is. And like always, that support around you made all the difference. Um, but yeah, that really did break me quite badly for a while. And I think in some ways it kind of, yeah, I, I think it 
again, that confidence comes and goes in waves, but I think it really helped me to feel quite content with what I'd done. You know, like there's always a, there's always a long list of things I could do better. Um, but after that, I was at the point where I had nothing more to give. I was absolutely scraping the barrel. And uh, I look back at some of those moments in disbelief, really, you know, from falling asleep in a bus stop to passing out in a hotel room to the injuries and the doubts and just the resilience of the human body and mind when they're working together is quite amazing. So a, a kind of a physical learning there as well as a psychological challenge too. Yeah. And what was the specifically the, the money being raised for? So that was for our charity. So essentially, I think, I think in the end it raised about 11,000, which is only just over my target. Um, but in the pandemic, that wasn't too much. That wasn't really a bad outcome. And I really appreciate everyone who did support me with that. Um, all of our events in the charity are all subsidised. So essentially, they people don't you know, people pay to attend, but they don't pay the actual cost of having the trained staff and support there. Then on top of that, we have bursaries available. So anybody in financial hardship, um, because of their mental health or circumstances, um, you know, we have quite a broad criteria. They can attend and it obviously removes that financial barrier so that anybody can get the help they need rather than waiting on an NHS list for months and months, which I was. Um, so essentially, the, any money raised for our charity through our fundraisers helps to essentially, you know, enable our events and to keep the charity running. Um, although we're very small, we don't, you know, we don't have an office, you know, it's, there's a lot of overhead costs in running a charity and, and, and staff as well. And trying to run a charity entirely voluntarily does, in my opinion, put a limit on its growth and potential. Um, so we've been, so, so, so essentially it was to provide more bursaries on our events. Yeah, sorry, I should have framed that question slightly better because I'd already said that it was going towards the charity, but I think it gives some context for people as to exactly where that money yeah. is going in a really tangible fashion. Um, and that, you know, that that what you raised was directly affecting somebody's life on, on a really quite profound scale, given, as you say, the, the length of waiting lists for people to get really critical psychological intervention that could save lives um at the end of the day really um i'm just going to move into just a few final uh quicker <laughs> quicker answer questions um you're 27 alex and you've already achieved so much um i know at the moment that you're slightly limited with kind of what you're doing physically with what you're another mountain that you're going through with long covid um what what are your kind of goals for the next few years I think first and foremost, the goal has to be to get back to health and fitness because for the first time in my life, I've not actually been able to set goals or challenges. And that sounds negative, but it's it's part of the recovery process is I've got to take away the pressure and actually focus on giving myself a chance to recover from what is essentially post-viral fatigue. I caught on COVID, well, I caught COVID after, two days after a 100-mile run in the Lake District on the Lakes, Mears and Waters this year, which was my longest ever run in one go. Perfect timing, but at least it happened afterwards. Um, and so, as a runner, we're probably more prone to come back a little bit too soon to, you know, our idea of an easy 5k run is a lot more than maybe somebody else's idea of, you know, an easy recovery time. Um, and I've still not been able to get out of that bunker. and. 
I mean, I've talked to you for hours about this journey. It has been probably the hardest year of my life um, in lots of ways, you know, and the biggest lesson from this has been about learning to slow down. You know, it's kind of easy to say that I've done a lot. For me, it doesn't feel like I've done anywhere near enough and I'm not where I should be now. Um, but almost, I'm, although I'm, I'm not religious, you know, people are saying to me, oh, this is God, you know, this is God showing you that you need to stop and rest and let your body heal. And I'm like, okay, God, I get the point. Just let me run now, you know. Um, but I do see some kind of spiritual meaning in in this, in that actually this is teaching me just to slow down. And, um, you know, the body will let me run when it's ready. And I think I'm slowly coming to terms with that. Sometimes, it, uh, you know, I lose sight of that. But I think my biggest challenge for now is to get back to health. You know, I've... I literally am the least fit and least active I've been since I found the outdoors, which yeah. has been an identity crisis on a different level. Um, so that's that. You know, I have big runs and big things and records planned as soon as I'm in a position. But for now, I've had just to try and just to try and forget about that. Um, I want to be speaking more, obviously. You know, that's the bulk of what I do. And with a charity, I want us to be, you know, the biggest provider in the UK of this sort of thing. I want this. I want us to be working with the NHS on a national standard. So there's lots of ambitions, both in the charity and then with this. But I think in the next few years, you know, I want to be doing what I'm doing on a much bigger scale, really. And I think just leaving something bigger behind. Um, if I can keep that kind of ecosystem going, you know, at the moment, I might be missing this big chunk of the outdoors, but in time, I know there'll be some opportunity or silver lining here, even if I can't see it right now. Um, but I hope it will bring me back as a much better runner. Thank you, Alex. Um, I think, again, it's such an example of your incredible altruism and humility in that answer. Um, and again, as someone who the past year has been a kind of, a mishmash of uh, issues with autoimmune flares and things that have taken away a lot of my kind of mobility. I can very much empathize with your current situation. And I think it is really important to say there are some times those days where you just want to rail against the universe and say, okay, I'm done now. <laughs> like, and, <laughs> and that's, that's okay as well to have that that anger and just like you know I've, yeah okay thank thanks god like we're kind of we're done now but just to take those everyday wins as well that might be completely alien to the goals that you set before it might be making yourself a cup of tea getting downstairs getting yourself out of bed whatever it is but they are their their goals and and their aims and the fact that you are you are still showing up in such an incredible manner to the things that you are committed to is incredibly admirable and just you know stacks up profoundly against anything else that you've achieved so please do please hear that and know that too um your favorite quote or words to live by yeah, this one should be a quick answer, actually, so I'll do my best. Um, my mantra and favourite quote is from a song by Roxanne Emery uh, called Learn to Fly, and it's um, learn to fall before you fly, learn to live before you die. And it's just about keeping on moving forward, really. Um, it's either that or 
if I have a second one, what I have printed on my diary is, uh, does it make the boat go faster? <laughs> and it's just this concept of prioritise on what is the main effort. Leave out all the other stuff. <laughs> yeah. I love those. Thank you. And finally, the most important question, what does joy mean to you? Oh, God. Okay. Um, I would say running, but I think I need to be more specific. <laughs> no, I you think can joy is about being in the moment when nothing else matters. And I think when you reach that state, that state is quite fleeting. It doesn't happen often. But when you're just happy being in the moment, I think that's a really special thing. I think that's I, I think that's um, enough in itself. Being in the moment. Well, thank you, Alex, so much. I've you're an incredible human. I know I've said that a few times, um, but I feel like um, I've learned so much through this conversation. Um, and I, I sincerely hope, I mean, I hope that all of my interviews are really important for people to listen to, but I, I really feel like we've touched on some things that are important messages for people to hear um, in general, um, and also connected specifically to what you're doing with Mind Over Mountains and your story. So I really hope um, that it helps as, as a channel to, to bring some attention to what you're doing um, and all that you've accomplished and all that you will accomplish in whatever form that that takes, because I think you really are truly someone who's continued to put one foot in front of another, as I say, in the, in the kind of show notes, um, whatever life has thrown at you or, or the universe. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, and good luck with your continued recovery as well. And please do reach out for for support as well um, uh, as a, as a friend. Because as I say, I've kind of gone through <laughs> gone through that road a bit and and know know how how you must feel at the moment. But but thank you for all of your insights and wisdom and just being a shining light, really. <laughs> thank you. Well, no, it's a pleasure. I really hope people do take something from that. If anybody takes a little line that's been of any use and uh, job well done but also as well you know people people often focus on the runners and the athletes being interviewed but you know actually i think as well a lot you know it's really important that your work is is, is also really important i thank you for building this platform and sharing it because without that people wouldn't have a chance to share these stories so thank you as well and especially i know how much time and work goes into building a podcast that's why i've never built one my own so um, yeah thank you as well thanks alex have a lovely evening we'll speak soon you too thanks for investing I'm so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast and if you've enjoyed today's episode I would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support, perseverance and joy further. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests you can find me on Instagram at running underscore on underscore joy. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time for Running on Joy.